Psalm 90. Page 929, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. And then uh, let us respond together with answer 105 at the back of our Blue Psalter Hymnal in the Heidelberg Catechism. That's page 53, Lord's Day 40. We'll do that after we read the text, Psalm 90. Gave a little change of pace this week and switched up. The Luke sermon will be this evening, the catechism sermon this morning. So if you're anxious to find out what happens next in the Gospel of Luke, you'll have to come back for evening worship. Psalm 90, God's word given to us for our good. Please give your attention to its reading. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, By evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is seventy years, or eighty if we have strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, For as many years as we have seen trouble, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Question and answer 105 in the back of our Blue Psalter hymnal. Let us read uh, this together as we consider today, this morning, the sixth commandment of God's law. I'll read the question. We can respond with one voice. What is God's will for us in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, insult, hate, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture. And certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with a sword. 
I don't know how many of you keep up with international news, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about this story that is particularly agonizing uh, that over the last few weeks has come out of the UK regarding a young baby boy. His name is Charlie Gard, and I bring up this story not to be trendy or sound like a cultural commentator or a newsman or anything like that. I think this situation illumines for us a a problem that is rampant in our world, that people do not have a basic understanding of the value and the sacredness of life. This young baby boy has a very, very rare disease, and his parents have wanted to go forward with some treatments that has had evidence of helping children with this kind of degenerative disease, but the doctors have disagreed with the parents. That is perhaps disturbing on some level, but what is even more disturbing is that this question was brought to the courts, and and the courts have sided not with the parents, but with the hospital and the doctors, saying that it would be better to withdraw treatment, as they have said, so that this child may die with dignity. And this illumines for us a major problem. And we see situations like this that have, that have cropped up in the last few decades that there seems to be a disconnect or, or a blurring of the lines between these two issues of letting die and killing. Historically, that has been the distinction we have worked with. There, there's a difference between letting die and killing. But the line between those two has gotten much, much fuzzier within the last few decades. With this in mind, this story in mind, and Psalm 90 in mind, we turn to consider the sixth commandment today. This is a prayer, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And we consider this prayer because it teaches us a couple of important lessons with regard to all of these things that we have mentioned. Important lessons as we consider the sacredness and the value of life. This prayer calls upon God to teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. What we learn is that only a world and a life view that is devoid of God could anyone think that life is in their hands or that it is under their authority to give or to take life away. Psalm 90 teaches us that God's eternal nature his eternality, and our own transience, our own mortality, uh, disallow our thinking that life and death are ours to give and to take away. Again, this is not to say that there are not complex questions around the end of life. But I was so bothered by uh, this situation in the UK, and many people have had a lot of moral anxiety because it seems like Uh, There should be steps taken to try and see if this child, uh, if his situation can be helped at all. But the state, the courts, the government, the doctors are all arrayed against this child's own parents. And I think Psalm 90 gives an answer for this. But all of that is true for all people. All of the world must recognize the, the, the sanctity, the sacredness of life. 
And God has, has written his moral law upon the heart of man, so the whole world must be able to recognize this in some way. But what Psalm 90 does for us is it goes one step further. Because it shows us that uh, we learn about the value of life from God's perspective through redemption. That's one of the things that Psalm 90 teaches us. So, as we consider all of these things, we'll go through it in three points. The first is God is eternal. God is eternal. The second is life is a breath. And the third is redemption shows how precious life is to God. Redemption shows how precious Life is to God. We turn then to this psalm, and what we see from the very beginning, from the outset, is that this psalm it has a different world and life view than many systems of thought that you would encounter in the world today. This psalm has a God-centered view of life, doesn't it? It begins by saying, O oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. It begins by recognizing God. And it begins with this idea of dwelling place. This is an, an interesting word in the Hebrew. Scholars, theologians have, uh, have discussed what this particularly might mean. But it's certainly some sort of habitation and it's connected to the idea of a refuge from trouble. And so it, it's not just saying that, that God is merely a dwelling place, but particularly a refuge, a help. Thus the psalm that is connected famously, or the song that is connected famously with this psalm, O God, our help in ages past. You see, it's that he is a help. This would have been acutely felt in the mind of the Israelites, wouldn't it? God is our refuge from trouble. Particularly the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness, or uh, the Israelites who were forced into exile. See, it's that God is a home for the homeless. God is a help, a Refuge. There are many houses in the world, aren't there? And some are, are much nicer than others. But all of us uh, know what a home feels like. There is that feeling that you get when you are home. A feeling of security, a feeling of rest, an ability to toss worry away. And at the beginning of this psalm shows us that to the mind of the Israelites and to the mind of, of all of God's people, this is what must ring true. God's people must feel like this with God, that he is their home, their help, their refuge. He is this because he has shown himself faithful generation after generation. That's what the end of the first verse says to us. But the, the psalm goes on and it heightens all of this. The first verse is really from the human perspective. You are faithful from generation to generation, but then it, it brings it up a level in the next verse doesn't it? Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's not just that God is faithful within generations, but God is the Lord over all of history. God is eternal. He was not just the God over this small people on the face of the earth. He is the Lord of all of the heavens and the earth. Certainly he was the covenantal caregiver for Israel. But this is the same God who exercises motherly care over all of creation. That's what this verse says, doesn't it? You brought forth the earth and the world. You laid its foundations. And yet even still, though this God is so 
closely tied to his creation. He is distinct from his creation, isn't he? From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He was God before he laid the earth's foundations. Theologians, Christians throughout the centuries have talked about this in terms of what they have called the infinite difference in quality between God and man. Yes, God made us in our image. Yes, we are called to reflect his character. But it's not as if God is just a very, very strong human being. God exists on a plane that is unlike our own. He is infinitely different from us in quality. So we worship and we give our adoration to this triune God. And there is often this this heightened prose through the Psalms, through the scriptures. And indeed, even at the beginning of one of our standards, the Belgic Confession, which has this beautiful list of attributes of God, it begins, it says, we worship him as eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty. He is completely wise, just, and good. He is the overflowing source of all good. This is a God whom we cannot fully fathom. This is a God whom we cannot approach in our own nature. He is a God who is eternal. The span of time that would seem to us like an eternity passes by this God as a breath. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, like a watch in the night. So what does all of this mean, the first four verses that bring out this God-centered view of life? What we learn is that a God-centered view of life will equal a different approach to life itself. This is foundational for questions of life. This is what the psalm is teaching us. When you have this God-centered view, you will approach life differently. It takes something or someone greater than something else to exercise authority over that thing. And there are all kinds of forces in this world and throughout this universe that let us know that we do not control the things that happen from day to day, do we? There are forces at work that are greater than us. But God is the one who stands before them. He is the one who exercises authority over all the earth. Our plight in verse 3 is likened to dust. And that's not just metaphorical, is it? Because when life ends, we are laid in the ground, and we return to dust. And the dust of verse 3 is contrasted with the glory and the splendor of the mountains in verse 2. You consider dust in relation to mountains, and there's a large disparity between those two, isn't it? The mountains stand. Generation after generation, people stand in awe of mountains, and yet mankind is returned to the dust. But the point is that God is the one who brought forth these mountains. God is the one who placed them there. The helplessness that you feel in front of a mountain is not to compel you to worship the mountain. It's to compel you to say, wow, God is so powerful that he would have placed them there. This is our God, the Lord, the source, the giver of life. And through it all, God is the shelter, the help, the home of his people. This God-centered view of life changes the way that we approach questions of life and questions of death. Secondly, we see life is a breath. In contrast to the never-ending and the never-changing life of God, there is the ever-changing and quickly-ending life of humankind. 
mortality, transience. We read that God, uh, to God, a thousand years is like yesterday. And we ask ourselves, if that is true about God, what then is our life? Our life is a breath. And this psalm does not shy away as seeing the source of our mortality coming from God. Verse 3, you return man to dust. Verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. These things are said, of course, asserted amidst the truth that the glory of human life is indeed real. Grass that blooms in the morning can indeed be glorious for the time that it shines in the sun, but it is fading, it is fleeting. In our lifetimes, we will be amazed that the physical prowess of a great athlete, the artistic talents of various singers or visual artists, But power and fame and glory can only last a lifetime, and it usually lasts much much shorter than that, doesn't it? There is a a very short play, I guess you can call it a play, that illustrates this quite powerfully. There's no actors, there's no lines, uh, there's just trash, garbage strewn about the stage. And the lights are down, and the the, the play begins as you hear the the first breath of an infant baby that is born. And there's this very long inhale, and the lights on the stage are brought up. And as the lights are brought up, you see that that this stage is filled with all of this trash, all all, all of this garbage. And then there's this great pause after the inhale. And then an exhale begins, and the exhale goes on for very long, and and the lights come down on the stage. And just before the lights cut out completely, you hear the last breath of that exhale, and then you hear another breath of an infant life being born. Life is a breath. And not only that, but the glory of the morning grass lulls us into a kind of sleep, doesn't it? It it, it causes us to, in a sense, not be able to think about the ultimate, the most important things of life. We get caught up looking at the glory of the morning grass. Job chapter 20 would remind us that We should not do this. Job 20 says this. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. Life is a breath. Psalm 39 says this, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Psalm 89 says this, Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? So perhaps this is the main thrust of Psalm 90. It's good and it's a biblical message, isn't it? Life is short. God is eternal, therefore make wise choices. Therefore live wisely on the earth. Certainly that's a part of what this psalm is teaching us. That's part of the message that we ought to hear, particularly as we consider the sixth commandment. How does God view life? It shows us that life is not ours to give or to take away. God is Lord over all of life, and that's contrasted with our mortality with our transience, 
And all of that precludes our strutting through the earth as if this life is in our hands, as if it is ours. So we need to hear that message today. The God-centered view of life changes the way we approach it. Whether it be a murderer on the streets, whether it be a doctor who thinks that it's his job to prevent suffering in his mind by ending a life, or as Jesus would tell us, if it is those who allow ourselves to be filled with murderous rage and hatred and bitterness towards our brothers and sisters or towards our fellow human beings. We need to take a step back and and see the world the way this psalm sees the world. God is eternal. Life is in God's hands. All of these things we must hear. But we must also hear how this psalm goes beyond it. We must also hear how this psalm shows the value of life to a redeeming God. The value of life to a redeeming God. It's not just that life is a breath. That's not just what Psalm 90 teaches us. It's also true that the wrath of God hangs over all of life on the earth. The psalm moves into Uh, This kind of thing about halfway through. Verse 7 speaks of anger and indignation. From what? Where does God's anger and indignation come from? It comes from verse 8. Because of our iniquities and our secret sins. Humanity's own rebellion against God. Which has placed us in this being under God's wrath. In the identity politics of today. uh, Most groups are caught up in thinking about how they can perpetuate this identity of victimhood to define their place in the world. I've seen it from all areas and corners of the political spectrum. Everyone's trying to prop themselves up as a victim. But the Bible sees us first and foremost not as victims, but as rebels. Rebels against God. People from every corner of the earth rebels against God. But this has been the fundamental turning point uh, that allows people to think that if they are victims, then that gives them the right to think about life in these ways. I'm a victim. I did not deserve this life. Therefore, I can approach life as if it is mine to give or to take away. But when you are thought of first as a rebel, you see how it disorients you from that kind of thinking. The result of God's wrath against us is what? Verse 10, trouble and sorrow. Our days may be 70 or 80 years if we are strong. But what good is life if it is just trouble and sorrow? Our life ends, not only is life a breath, but it ends like a sigh or a moan. So where is God's abiding presence in this? God's faithfulness from generation to generation that we saw in verse 1. If all that is experienced is this awful cycle of toil and trouble and sorrow, how are we to gain or how are we to see any goodness in this life? How can we view this life as worth it? It's the same thing over and over again. There's this famous story in mythology. Sisyphus was condemned by the gods to roll a giant stone up a hill. And just before he got to the top of the hill, the stone would roll back down and he would have to go down to the foot of the hill, take a a deep breath and start over. Indicative to many people as they have read this or thought about this story, indicative of the meaningless struggle of life, the absurdity of life, 
seems to be the same thing over and over again. And it has been this absurdity that has caused people to say, maybe it's better to avoid the suffering altogether. These cycles of of trouble and sorrow and suffering. Therefore, if suffering can be avoided, maybe we should just end life. Maybe that's the best way of going about it. It's hard for people to square with this reality. It's hard for us to square with the reality. Look at verse 11. It says that God's wrath is as great as the fear that is due him. Not as great as the the reverence and the worship that we give to him. God's wrath is as great as the worship that is due to him. That should be, in many ways, a terrifying thought. But we see that all of this coalesces into where the psalm gets to this idea of wisdom. And this idea of wisdom as reflected in the wisdom of God is a wisdom that is able to see all that God has done from beginning to end and allows us to see the value of life from God's perspective as a God who redeems his people. And that is the point upon which this psalm terms. The word for wisdom at the end of verse 12 is a word for technical skill. Technical skill that is, uh, that is also carried with it an aesthetic value. It's a word that you would use to describe an athlete who uses all of his skills in one moment, not just what he does generally, but all of his skills in one moment uh, for a dazzling play of athleticism. It's a word that you would use uh, to describe a violinist at the height of her power uh, playing Mozart. It's this technical skill combined with aesthetic value. And this psalm asks God for a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom that is shaped and reflected by God's own wisdom. God's own wisdom, his technical skill, his mastery. And what this psalm is leading us to is that this God has technical skill, mastery over redeeming people. That is the kind of skill, mastery, that this God has. That is how God is known by his covenant people. Uh, Those who uh, knew him from Egypt onwards. God redeemed us out of Egypt. And look at how he did that. This is a God who is skillful in redemption. And for us, of course, we know this God how. We know this God through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And it is that in the gospel that we see God's technical skill, his mastery of redeeming. And since he is a redeeming God, we see that that shows us how much he values life. And this is why the people of God can go a step beyond what everyone else in the world should see. Everyone else in the world should see that life is a breath. Everyone else in the world should see that there is a God who is eternally strong and mighty and powerful, who holds the world in his hands. But we especially can see that in redemption, we see a God, we have a God who values life. Verse 13 brings this all together in an amazing way. It says, return, O Lord. And that's the first time that Lord, capital, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, That's the first time that the covenant name of God is used. In verse 1, it's the word Adonai. 
But here in verse 13, we see the covenant name of God, Yahweh. What did that mean to the Israelites? It meant that this is a God who has redeemed us. This is a God who has made us his own by his mercy and by his grace. It's where we know God, not as judge primarily, but as savior, as redeemer. For us, the covenant name of God, we should think not only of God as Father, but God as Father, Son, and Spirit, revealed to us to bring forth our redemption, all three persons of the Godhead, working together to accomplish redemption and to apply it to us in Christ, not because we deserve it, but because He loves us. And so we look at all of what God has done in history and we see his wisdom. For only an eternally wise God could accomplish a redemption that would not only glorify himself, but it would humble our hearts and also fill us with gratitude. Because all of these things working together, the eternality of God, the transience and the mortality of man... The anger and the indignation of God, the rebellion of his human subjects. All of these things working together to bring about, to show that in the shadow of all of that, this God is one who will hear a cry for mercy and he will redeem a lost person. This is a God who exercises and exalts the riches of his grace. We read Psalm 90 and there's all this talk about the wrath of God. But we must realize and remember that the wrath of God is known to us in the fact that the Son of God bore the wrath for us. And that is the technical skill, the mastery of redemption of our God. And that shows us, above all things, that this God values life in a special way. Life mattered so much to this God that the Son of God came and laid down His life. That is how much life matters to God. Jesus Christ fulfilled the whole law of God. Jesus Christ kept the sixth commandment, even down to never feeling murderous rage or bitterness against those who were plotting His own murder in order to show us just how much our lives are valuable. He laid down his own life. This is not only a God-centered view of the world and of life, it is redemption saturated to see, to show us how much God values life. We must number our days in light of this wisdom, not in the sense that we count down our days, but in the sense now, this side of the cross and the resurrection, now we see How valuable human life is to God. All people on earth are called to submit to God's law when it comes to the sanctity of life. But especially God's people can know that God's love in redemption heightens our awareness of how much life matters to this God. He loved us enough to redeem us. Christ valued our life enough to give his own life. This shades our understanding of all of these complex questions about life, about death, all of these things that so plague us, the cycles of toil and suffering and trouble and sorrow. We view it through the lens of redemption. 
We understand that even though uh, the wrath of God hangs over a sin-cursed world, that the Son of God came to bear the wrath of God. That is how we view all of these things. We see the end of this psalm bring this around beautifully. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. The joy of knowing God as Lord. The joy of knowing God as a covenant redeemer and savior can change the way that this life is viewed. Verse 16, make your deeds shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the gospel, may God's works of redemption change the way that we see, that we view the glory of human life of the morning grass. May God's works of redemption remind us that we must never get caught up in seeing the glory of the morning grass uh, to the detriment of not seeing it fade away and shrivel and die in the afternoon. It is God who stands before all things. May our children be raised uh, to not see only the glory of human life of the morning grass. May they be shown the splendor, the majesty, the glory of God, not only who he is, but what he has done. And it's the work of God, the work of the redeeming God that establishes the work of our hands. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Why is each day given meaning and value? Because we understand it through the lens of a redeeming God. We understand it through the lens of a a God who sent his son for us. Thus, we live each day, as the Apostle Paul would would say, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the redeeming work of God that establishes our work. These truths hang over all of creation. That God is eternal. That life is a breath. When we approach questions of life and death with all of those things, we see that life is not ours to give and to take. We are to value life the way that God does, but especially we learn about that through redemption. Our covenant Lord and King, who has washed away every stain of our sin in in and through His Son. That is the truth of God. We give thanks to Him. We give thanks to this beautiful prayer of Moses that reminds us of all of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are eternal, and we are not. We understand that in relation to the history of the world, even our life is but a mere breath. So in comparison to you, who are God from everlasting to everlasting, Father, we pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts. By all of these things, shape us to be able to know that we go, we set foot out into the world with the work of our hands being established by you, our Lord, established by your work. We give you thanks and praise for the goodness shown to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.